slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And continuing my theme of strange introductions for this season, I'm Chris Kreitchew in need of a vacation right now. <laughs> and we'll just I'm do a Ste- different one every two weeks. <laughs> and I'm Stephen Caradini, and I'm doing just fine. As so, usual. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to talk about data in relationship to smart cities and housing and infrastructure type things. Big data. Big data. Super big data. City data. City level data, which, you know, (laughs) depending on how big your cities are is real big. And partially we're interested in this because of the nature of data. Now, one, you may be thinking, wow, this is about to be the most boring episode of all time. We're going to talk about data. That's True. We're going to talk about data. But what's interesting to us about data is how data is used, why data is collected, and what data is collected on. So these sort of meta questions of how do we think about data as a concept before we actually have the data in our hands. We're going to talk about like some things you should do with data and shouldn't do with data. But what we're more interested in for this episode is the nature of how you, before you have any data in your hands, decide what, why, and how of data. We don't think anybody actually does this that well, so (laughs) we're going to lay some principles out. Some context, some kinds of things where you might see data being used in that quote-unquote big data sense, which big data was one of those keywords that basically owned a large swath of the tech sector for roughly five years out of the 2010s so far. And it's sort of in eclipse now under the ML and AI banners, machine learning and AI. But Yeah, but big data... It's still there. It's going to be running the whatever terminology we have yep. forever. And a lot of the machine learning and AI stuff is all predicated on the collection of large amounts of data. And this kind of data includes all sorts of things. It includes things like the guy who drives past your house with a little piece of electronics that collects usage data from the meters for your water and your gas and so on. It includes things like Chinese facial surveillance, where they just watch your face all the time and identify where everyone in the country is all the time and track their emotional state and track whether they jaywalk and do all sorts of um, perhaps big brother terrifying things. There's no perhaps about this, son. We're going to link you the most dystopian (laughs) article that's ever been dystopian, but was also real. Uh, It's terrifying. And a million things in between, including the kind of data collection that is probably most common to most Americans' experience of the internet, tracking your every single move on the internet via all sorts of ridiculous dirty tricks and cookies and all sorts of things. GDPR is going to make that harder. What's up? But only incidentally for Americans. Boo. Yeah. And along the way, things like future prognosticated uses of data, like let's figure out if these roads have potholes or will soon have potholes in them by making the roads smart and the smartness of data that comes with 
self-driving cars and, and, and I could go on. There is yeah. data being collected about all sorts of things. And increasingly we have opted into the collection of our own data, whether that's in a running app or a weight logging app or all sorts of things. We have an incredibly and increasingly metricalized world where we record and measure data about everything. As a qualitative scholar, I would like to take this moment to be like, whoa, chill, guys, <laughs> no, stop. Stephen didn't like math. That's what he's saying. That's true. That's not what, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying, but that's true. So the hook here, Chinese facial recognition, dystopian city planning and crime monitoring is really what got me thinking about this. We also have an article from Nick Carr about the impressive amount of metadata that we create. But it really boils down to this idea of what is being collected? What is it? And tied to that is why is it being collected? So once you have those two questions, then you can move on to the how, because that's just the implementation part, which we have ideas and thoughts on. But the what and the why are relevant. And important. And they get conflated and con constricted and tied into each other and then separated out from each other. So at some levels, these are the same question. And at some other levels, they're very, very different. So for instance, if you think about uh, smart roads or smart sewers, so these are infrastructure projects on a city level, and one of the major issues that many cities have is tracking these infrastructure projects so that they don't deteriorate before they can get to them to fix them. So if you can replace them when they're about to go out instead of when they actually go out, that's way better for everyone in the city. Because you don't end up with sewage in your yard. It's much better that way. Way more awesome to not have sewage in your yard. So that seems like... A, a good why. Let's prevent utilities breaking down. Let's prevent the public good from coming apart in particular ways. And a lot of these utilities are invisible either actually. You can't see the sewer much of the time unless you're staring into a sewer grate. Why would you do that? I mean, you throw <laughs> balls and they roll and you got to <laughs> grab them. You were a kid. It happened. Hockey pucks, you know. Street hockey. That's two episodes in a row. Street hockey. <laughs> anyway, uh, conceptually invisible are things like roads. Like you think about them when there's a pothole, but if there's no pothole and you get where you're going, you may think about traffic, but you don't think about the road per se. Right. So conceptually invisible or literally invisible. Those seem like easy things to collect data on. Why? To fix it before it breaks. What? Whatever type of information, maybe it's number of cars going over the road, maybe it's amount of flow going through individual sewers, uh, whatever it is that they're trying to track to figure out the life of this utility. Those are tied together, but they're also not, not that easy to think about separately. So that's a fairly easy use of data. Now, if we really wanted to, we could go through and find some complicating factors of why this may or may not be the best thing ever. But at a basic level, that's a what and a why. And then as a how, you say like, okay, let's stick a sensor in a pipe or stick a sensor in a road, and then you move on the way. On the far opposite end of the spectrum is the aforementioned horrifically dystopian Chinese use of facial identification software to publicly shame people for jaywalking and 
to basically build a Black Mirror episode <laughs> in yeah. a whole actual country. What's up, Rich? When we get into that kind of territory, the why is often proffered as something that seems good on the surface and may even be genuinely a a real good avoiding dangerous jaywalking or uh, thinking about ways that we might prevent crimes or reduce crime rates in an area or arrest dangerous criminals that we've identified through the use of facial tracking software. The question, as has often been the case in a lot of these discussions already this season, is what are the costs and the costs of persistently surveilling the faces and behavior of all of your citizens are extraordinarily high. There is no notion of privacy at that point. There is no right. notion of private behavior. And right. privacy can go amiss itself. That can run amok. But it is nonetheless a, a legitimate good. It is, as with most things, a, a good that can go amok, not something that is wholly evil. My ability to walk down to a store and get some food and come back doesn't really need to be, and in fact, really should not be, a matter of public record. We don't want to be in the spot where, as unfortunate as, and as much as it can have societal impacts, obesity caused by a lack of self-control, and I'm being very specific in the kinds of things I'm pointing there for a reason— should not be the kind of thing that has, you know, say civil penalties applied to it because, oh, we, we facially tracked you and tracked all your spending purchases and we can see that you buy 47 packages of Twinkies every day. You will now no longer get any health care. That seems bad. That seems bad. We should not be doing those kinds of things. Now, again, I, I pointed to some very specific scenarios there, and we can think of ways in which you might be able to use data collected about a person in a health context to help drive decisions, but you can see how quickly those kinds of things can get out of hand. You start factoring in making that data available to people who are literally in charge of life and death, police departments, for example, uh, federal investigative departments, for example, and especially in a totalitarian context. I was about but, to say, abusive governments, right. et cetera. Even in the context of a place where we try to preserve rule of law, it's pretty easy to see that stuff getting out of hand in a hurry. And it's very difficult to think of ways that you could prevent it from getting out of hand consistently. Right. When you have a government that's taking data and that is using that for specific ends, maybe like Chris said, the why is good. They're trying to avoid crime. The problem is what is defined as crime. When they're trying to promote health, the problem is what is defined as health. When right. they're trying to promote jaywalking, the problem is what is defined as jaywalking. And that is maybe a trivial thing, but actually Uber is finding out that that's not a trivial thing at all. Correct. So there's a lot of ways that the situations in which the data is deployed – the larger frame in which data is intervening is more significant to the situation and to the ethics of the data being collected than the actual collection of the data. Because right. again, if you're looking at a how for any of those things that China is doing or that are theoretically possible with, with health tracking, you just put up cameras in places and then you run them down to you know the cable network that's nearby and you make sure that they're secured and boom that the how is not complicated well um, make sure that they're secured mm. well i okay 
That's one of the reasons that the how does get complicated. Digitally secured. I meant physically secured, so you can't like knock it over or anything. <laughs> like the actual yeah. physical implementation of this is not complicated. Right. So yeah, digitally securing everything is way, <laughs> way, way harder. Which is one of the real problems with massive data collection. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, Your refrigerator attacking uh, Krebs on security is a significant problem. But all that to say, the how of data collection is sometimes, not always, but sometimes what people focus on. Like, should we give our data in smartphone apps or should the cameras be automatically processing it? And those are valuable questions, but they're end of the line questions. They're not Mm -hmm. front of the line questions. Front of the line questions are, why are we collecting this and what are we collecting? Because even if you just put up a camera, which is a how question, what data are you going to track out of that? Are you only going to track perhaps flashes that might indicate gunfire? That te- that tells you one sort of data point. Are you going to track every person who walks through the frame? Are you going to track every vehicle that goes through the frame and or not get their license plate number? So one how camera stuck on pole can do an infinite number of things. For instance, if you're up in Scottsdale, you can get uh, your license plate number hit by a camera if you make a uh, right turn at the wrong time, right? So if you're turning right in a no right turn or turn no turn on red, then Scottsdale can pick up your license plate number and send you a ticket without a policeman ever being involved. That seems like annoying, but you know, is an interpretation of uh, traffic laws. That same camera can do a nigh on infinite number of things now. So the how is important, but really kind of a secondary concern to the fact that Scottsdale does not appear to be tracking anybody who walks down the street and testing (laughs) out whether they are heavier or uh, lighter than the last time they walked down the street, which is possible. Right. In the middle of those sorts of extremes. And the point where we thought we would be able, perhaps most effectively, to step into the kinds of questions we pointed to at the beginning of the season as undergirding all of these things, the relationship between data and wisdom and ethics and wisdom more generally. Right. A lot of things in the the fuzzy gray middle are much harder to reason about merely from data points. So... One place where data gets used fairly consistently and in what we might describe as a reasonable, a rational way is the way that mortgage possessors – do you own a mortgage or does a mortgage own you? Well (laughs) – Stephen and I have both been in the house buying process in the last year. These questions are close to mind. Yes, yes. My wife and I often joke that we currently do not own a house. We own a tiny bit of a house and mostly own a mortgage. There's a lot of data on how houses in particular neighborhoods behave in the sense that people who pick up a house in this neighborhood are X percent more likely to default on it. There's actually a lot of data that goes to, hey, people in this particular minority group are more likely than people in the majority white population in the United States to do well on a loan. And people in that minority population are likelier to default on a loan or to have persistent late payments or whatever else. That data exists. And if you're a bank and you're acting purely in an economically rational sense, 
using these in a very technical sense, economic rationality is a thing. You can look it up. We'll link it in the show notes. Then it's very well advised for you to get as much of that data as possible and having amassed it to use it in all of your judgments about whether you should assign a mortgage to someone or not, whether you should approve their application for that loan, because your responsibility is to your shareholders. You are trying to minimize risk and maximize profits. And the more data you have, well, you have sufficient data to make reasonable judgments about those things and to carry on. Yeah. But the trick is the data itself has a context. And there are two ways in which we can talk about data having a context. One of them is the point that Stephen raised which is what data am I even choosing to collect? The kinds of data we choose to collect inherently bias the data available to us afterwards. The methods by which we collect the data can do likewise. But the other way in which the data we collect is itself insufficient for thinking about broad problems of these sorts is that data is a reflection of the world around us as we find it. It doesn't tell us anything about the ethics of the world as we find it. Right. And it doesn't tell us, cannot tell us whether we ought to be doing something to change the data that describes the world we find around us. Right. Because data is information collected by humans about human institutions in the kinds of things we're talking about. There's also data about, you know, the behavior of stars on cosmological timescales and that's a different kind of thing, though even their data collection gets interesting. I'll try not to hair off after that, though my background in physics does sometimes make me want to. Yeah, I mean, Alpha Centauri is not trying to take out a loan anytime soon. So. Right, exactly. Although, Alpha Centauri, if you want to, let us know. <laughs> we'll check your lending score. How have neighboring star systems done lately? One of them exploded. It was terrible. <laughs> not a good lender, or not a good mortgage owner. <laughs> <laughs> supernovas disqualify you permanently <laughs> when when we're looking at human systems though the history of the human system matters all the data in the world can't tell you that even if say and i'm making this particular stat up because it's a plausible one given particular history that african americans in certain cities are more likely to default on a loan than white people in those cities are that can't tell you the reason and the reason is probably that white people spent a couple hundred years setting up horrible conditions that make it difficult for the african americans in that city to maintain a job you can't just look at data in complicated scenarios like that and most scenarios are complicated like that. Right. And so some people who are pro-data would be like, well, then we just need more and different types of data. And that's not wrong, but the types of data that you need are more structural, qualitative, historical, and ethical than right. they are rational, technical, and economic. Because And really, is ethical data data? Uh, I mean... <laughs> For the people that we're talking about, everything is data in the end. It's just so one more thing, one more thing in a calculator. <laughs> right. But that's part of my point. That's not right. Yeah. So it's hard to say, like, to your point, it's hard to put a data line for how bad was redlining in this particular area for how long. That's not really a thing that you can say, like, actually... Now that I'm thinking about it, you probably could go and figure out like a redlining score and like right. figure that out and put that into the... But it can't tell you that redlining is wrong. Something outside of data has to tell you that. Right. It can't tell you that redlining is wrong. 
Although you, I mean, a zero percent redlining score. Well, I guess depending on your view of of whether redlining was good or bad, you would have a different perspective on whether zero was good or bad. So exactly. you're right. There's there's really no way to objectively say that this particular data point, whether positive or negative, has any objective, quantitative, definable ethical stance. Right. It's a number. And numbers don't have meaning without an ethical context. Now, we, as Chris mentioned, we can bake our ethics into the data by picking what to collect. Somebody who's collecting a redlining score in addition to the number of house defaults in an area probably means that they're looking to offset some of their types of data with different types of data. Mm -hmm. So you can bake in some ethics there to say, like, we're going to balance these two things against each other. Then you also have things like In the neighborhood that I'm moving out of right now, there are a ton of rental houses, which makes sense. I was in one of them. So (laughs) I ended up in a place where there are lots of them. No surprise. I would guess, based on the home buying forms that I've had to go through, buying a house that you intend to rent is going to cause different data to be collected on you and different data to be applied to you in various ways than if you were just trying to buy a house and live in it as your primary residence. And the point of that is that we already have some ethics baked in there. There's a difference in these two types of things. One of them is obviously being perceived as a business and the other is being perceived as a primary residence. So there are different rules. So And different risks. And different risks. And so the data that's being collected in those two situations, the points of analysis that are being considered as uh, valuable and important are different. And so thinking about what does it mean that we're already choosing what data to use at various points, thinking about how can we analyze what types of data we see as relevant to a situation, that determines what you should ethically gather, how you should ethically gather it, and why you should gather it, if at all you should gather it. Because there are plenty of things being gathered that Chris and I think you probably shouldn't gather. I mean, There's definitely things I had to fill out when I was trying to apply for a mortgage that I was like, that's ridiculous. This is totally (laughs) unnecessary. There's nothing that makes this piece of data valuable except that you're using it as a proxy for my character. Right. Like, and that's offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I have to do it. It's because that's part of the process that we've created. And that's literally the point of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that gets us back around to things we've talked about in the past. One of the downsides of our late modern hyper-atomized individualistic context is that you can't have just grown up around someone and known, yeah, Stephen always keeps his word and has paid off every loan anyone has ever given him because there are only 400 of us in this town and I know Stephen. Right. We don't have that. So we have to have these other things. And that one time that he didn't pay off the loan was not his fault because everybody knows that that guy is a jerk and makes it hard for everybody. (laughs) Right. Right. That's the sort of collective personal knowledge that you can know like oh yeah, yeah his his loan on jerry defaulted that means he was late by a day <laughs> right right and so we've got structures that we've tried to put in place to replace that and necessarily so because of the context we have and in any large city for many many hundreds if not thousands of years those kinds of structures have had to exist for that exact reason. If you're not living in a very small town, you need some of these structures in place. The question becomes how to collect that information 
ethically and what information can be collected ethically. One of the examples that Stephen threw into our podcast prep notes that I think is a really useful one is thinking about questions of public transit and public transit usage. You can imagine it's not hard to get data on how much use a given bit of public transit gets, whether that's a bus or commuter rail or whatever else you can think of. And you can then imagine that one natural consequence of collecting that data might be to say, look, we pour N thousands of dollars into this route every year and people just don't use it that much. We should shut it down. The data is telling you a true thing. It's telling you that people aren't using it that much. But what it does not tell you, and what you could perhaps gather via other means of data collection, surveys, etc., but which even those wouldn't tell you what to do with the data, is what is the import of this in people's lives? And what is the right way to think of this as a public good that is shared, that is a way that we as a community might be trying to enable, say, economic advancement for people who've been stuck in crappy situations or rehabilitation of parts of the city that have gotten run down over time. Let's put infrastructure in place. Just having the data can actually lead you to do the wrong things if your ethical constraints on what you do with the data and your reasons for collecting that data in the first place are not sufficiently rigorous. Right. So there are many people that use public transit because they live far away from the places that they're going. This is sort of a de facto reason that you would use public transit if it's available to you. If you live farther and farther away from, let's say, the downtown city core, potentially those stops, let's say a bus stop, those stops are going to get used less simply because mm-hmm. there are going to be a fewer number of people going into the downtown city core from, if you're in Raleigh, from you know Blue Ridge Road, from the northern uh, part of the bus route. So it would make sense to say, well, let's pull in that footprint and make more stops uh, in shorter distances so that the people who are actually using it can walk less. Mm-hmm. So make it even more amenable to people who are using it in public transit, urban area style. However, if you are a person who decided to live next to that bus stop way up on Blue Ridge Road because it was there and sold your car because you knew the bus was going to be there and you arranged your life around the ability to get to work on time with that bus line in that particular way, and then suddenly the city is like, hey man, not very many people use this bus line, not very many people use this stop, we're going to cut it. That's a significant difference. That's a significant problem than for someone who's in downtown who maybe a stop is cut in the middle of downtown, you have to walk an extra block or two. Right. That's that's a significant different thing that you can't tell because the data says there are 30 people that get on and off this bus at this stop in an hour. And at the one up in Blue Ridge, there's two people that get on the bus every hour at this stop. Is the value to those two people higher than it is to the 30 people? That's unknowable. That's not a thing you can data point from the data that's being collected of people who go in the bus's doors. 
So choosing what data you use, then you, like Chris said, you could use the survey, you could use any sort of, you know, modeling. There's a lot of different ways that you can choose to import data and develop systems of what matters and what doesn't. And you may end up still cutting that bus route, even if you use all the available data, qualitative and quantitative in the world. But if you are only using people who go in the door and people who come out the door, you're not going to capture any of that. Right. And the fundamental issue there is that the data can't tell you what data you should be collecting. Only your broader communal and ethical structure can tell you that. Exactly. And so as we think about smart cities, as we think about smart all sorts of things, smart refrigerators, just don't buy them. They're dumb. (laughs) As we're thinking about smart cities, we need to remember that data collection is a useful tool when employed to return to the theme we introduced at the beginning of the season wisely. Measurement is a a valid part of our judgment making, but it's not sufficient on its own. And no one who says it is, is to be trusted in ethical decision making because they haven't come to recognize that we create the data. We we choose the data and we choose it for ultimately what are our ethical or unethical reasons. Right. And yes, There is a situation where if you're an accountant, if you're a banker, you're going to look at things in highly rational, highly specialized sorts Mm -hmm. of ways. And we're not saying that that's carte blanche wrong. We are trying to say that looking at limited types of data and making purely rational decisions off of those limited types of data is a form of blindness. Now, you can make rational decisions if you've brought in an ethical structure and you have multiple types of data. We're not saying that you can't make rational decisions, but the ways that those decisions are approached uh, are, in our perspective, very impoverished at this particular time. And the solution isn't merely more data. So often in these discussions, that's the assumption. It's not just the lack of information that's the problem. Because all the information in the world, absent that ethical system, still won't help you. Right. So go listen to episode two of this season and (laughs) start there. The music at the beginning of the episode was Shara Lee by Jameson Isaac, also known as Teen Days. I'm super stoked that we got permission to use this. I love Teen Days. I've listened to his music for a really long time. Uh, Part of my dissertation was written to just lots of Teen Days. So (laughs) thank you, Jameson. Thank you, uh, the his PR people, thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, don't use this work without permission. I will find you. <laughs> Steven will fight you. That's right. Thanks as well to this month's sponsors, including Andrew Fallows and Kurt Klassen. We appreciate the support. If you would like to sponsor the show, you can go to patreon.com slash winning slowly for ongoing contributions, or you can go to cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly to throw something our way just once. Woohoo! You can also follow us on Twitter at Winning Slowly, at Chris Kreitshow, at Scaradini. You can email us at hello at winningslowly.org. We really appreciate it. And uh, we do think about the stuff that gets sent to us, and sometimes it pops up in other episodes. True story. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>